I think every one of us has dramatic experiences in our lives. And we think that that experience is going to be the epiphany or the thing that will just kind of change us forever. We have that experience. But as life moves on sometimes, right after the epiphany, we fall back into the normal routine of life. And without realizing it, instead of that event being the life change that it could, we find ourselves just being who we always were. Even though maybe we talked to other people and we said, man, this happened and it was like life-changing for me and I'm never going to be the same. Sometimes when those kinds of things happen in my life, I'll buy Nancy something as a memorial to this thing that's going to change. I was looking in my house the other day and there's an object like that. I said I'm never going to be the way I was before, but life has changed and I'm falling back into that same routine. I like the fact that for a little bit of time now, we are going to hone in on one person's life in the Bible. Someone that had an epiphany meeting with God, a kind of life-changing meeting with God. And I like the fact that we're going to see that God has people just like us in the Bible. Because I think that occasionally we go, I'm not at the Elijah level. You know? He was pretty special and pretty amazing. I'm not at that level. But what does James tell us? James tells us this. Elijah was a man just like us. Or, or, or we'll take a look at one of the apostles and we'll go, man, I, I could never be a Peter. But then you read about the life of Peter and you're like, I am so Peter. You know, you, know, you just all of a sudden see this reality. All of our hope in all of our future and all of what we are experiencing now in our faith is tied to one man that God had a meeting with. You realize that? And it's the man that we started discussing in chapter 12 of Genesis. It's Abraham. And the promises of what God, not what Abraham will do, but that what God will do for, through him have repercussions in all of life today. This one man and his family shape all of spiritual life today. Have you realized that? And so here's a man who had this meeting with God and God promised him that He would make him a people and that He would give him a place and he said that through you, well, let's, let's just read it again when God was reiterating it to him in Jab, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. He says this, Then God appeared again to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he's promising a people and he's promising a place. And if we go back to Genesis chapter 2, verses Genesis chapter 12, starting at verses 2 and 3, he also says, and I will bless you and I will bless all nations through you. And we are experiencing that. Because when you go to the book of Luke, you see that this whole genealogy for who Jesus is 
and who his family is goes right back to Abraham. But Abraham was a man just like us. And today we're going to see kind of how he was a man just like us. Because when we pick up the story, um, at the end of this it says that he said, So he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him, for there he moved on to the hill country of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And it says, And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on going towards Negev. I like, as I was studying for this week, I came across a thought from David Jeremiah. I'd like to say that it's my original thought, but it's really his. He says this, Life has not changed since the time of Abraham. Life is all about tents and altars. He says, if we don't understand that today, that this is just a tent, that this isn't our home, that God is building our future home, and if we forget that this is just a tent, we're in trouble. We're still in tents, just like Abraham. And he says, and the other thing that we see in Abraham's life is if we don't remember to go often to the altar, we're in trouble. All of life is supposed to be about realizing we live in a tent and going to the altar. Going to the place where we can meet God. But not all of life is that easy. Even though he's had this incredible meeting with God, and I think if any one of us thought, if I had a meeting like that with God, and He talked to me and He promised me those things, it would change me forever. And Abraham did go to Canaan, but then all of a sudden, life happened. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down, some of the Bibles say sojourned, to Egypt, for the famine was severe in the land. You know, one of the things that's a reality is that Abraham faces a hardship. Hardship is a real hardship, he was going to be hungry. And if you're hungry and you don't have food, then you become hangry, right? And so he did what seemed logical. Even though God had promised him this land of Canaan, Abram faces this hardship. And he moves to escape the place that God had given him. You know what? God, I know you made this promise to me, but I'm hungry. I have this need. And so, I'm going to move from where I am to Egypt to this other place. Now, I don't know if you start thinking about this, but going to Egypt never turns out really well for any of God's children. There's usually a downside to Egypt. But that's what he does. He goes down there. Because Abram is facing a hardship. And so he tries to escape, and we are the same way. The first thing we don't think when we experience a hardship in our life is, I wonder what God's up to. And that's not, we should, but that's not usually the first thing we think about. We're going, oh, right? If you're married, you go home and you complain to your wife. 
If you're at home, you tell your husband when he gets there. You know, or, or, or vice versa. There is this sense that when we face hardship in life, our first desire isn't to go, this is going to be awesome. Our first desire is to flee it, right? Let's go someplace where this isn't going to be an issue. And for Abram, that meant Egypt. Because he was facing a hardship. But as he was going to Egypt, he started facing danger. And he got afraid. He says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I want you to know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. Honey, you're good looking. Which isn't bad because she's 65 at the time and she's a looker. That's a good thing. You know? But he's saying that this might be an issue. So he says this. He goes, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Okay. You know, your killer good looks are going to get me killed. (laughs) You know, the first thing that he experienced was hunger, hardship. The second thing he experienced was fear. And when we experience fear, there's a desire for self-preservation, isn't there? We want to take care of ourselves. And so he says this to his wife. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. Okay? You are my trophy wife, but I just want you to be my trophy relative. that my life will be spared for your sake. Now, this wasn't completely a lie. Some people believe that either he married his half-sister or there's even a thing in the culture that when you become a part of the family, not only are you my wife, but you're my sister. But it wasn't completely the truth, was it? But sometimes that's what we do. Sometimes all of a sudden, in the middle of it, when fear comes in, Self-preservation comes in, and all of a sudden, we do something. We put the promise of God in jeopardy. Did you think about what's happening here? You know, when God says, I will make you a people, you can't do that alone. You know? You need a wife. And yet, here he is thinking, okay, I'm not going to call you my wife now. I know what the promise is, but I'm afraid. So I'm going to put... God's promise of people in jeopardy for myself. Sometimes God he asks us to do things, and they're hard things. And without realizing it, we know what the promise is, but we, we put it in jeopardy because fear or some emotion gets in the way. Oftentimes I'll talk to people who are, are caught up in sin and they'll say, this was the emotion that fed this and this is why and this is why I'm rationalizing that it was okay. Sometimes they will say crazy things like, I believe God's giving me permission to sin in this area because, you know, have you ever heard people say that? You know, I think it was God's will for me to sin. That doesn't make any sense when you say it out loud, but you know, they'll, they'll fill in the particular sin that they're committing and they'll say that that's God's will. But it all comes out of an emotion. 
and, and see, even though Abram has received this promise of people and this promise of place, he's still a man just like us. Sometimes hardship and just the needs that we have, they, they, they refocus us. And sometimes the emotions that we have and that desire for self-preservation, it, 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 it affects us. Because, you know, he could have just said, you know what, God, it's pretty hard here, but you told us to come here, so I guess you're going to take care of us here. No, he starts doing what most of us do. It's like, uh, I'm just getting used to this God thing. <laughs> I'm just learning to trust you. So there are certain times that the most important to t- person to trust is trust me more. I'm going to trust me. Because I've tried to trust other people and none of them are trustworthy. But I'm pretty trustworthy. And, and if I mess up, the only person that affects is me. Which is a lie too, isn't it? <laughs> because it always affects other people. Do we ever get to sin alone and it affect just us? I, I don't think so. But it gets better. So, all of a sudden... Sometimes when we do the wrong thing and we're in the wrong place, things go okay. And so then we say in our minds, I guess it wasn't wrong that I did this because it seems like God is blessing me and I I have this, this windfall going on. That Well, let's read about it. He says, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was beautiful. So it wasn't just that he, you know, needed cataract surgery. She really was beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So this was such a big deal. She must have been really attractive. Because all of a sudden, it just wasn't just like Geisar and said, well, she's gorgeous. And then, then, then all of a sudden they start talking, did you see that woman? Woo! You know? All of a sudden, some of those men were around Pharaoh and they said, hey, have you been out lately? I mean, there's this foreigner, he came into town, and his sister? Wow! I mean, if you want to have good-looking children, she would be the one to choose, you know? You know? You know, the DNA there is looking really good. And so all of a sudden there is this idea, okay? And so what happens? In verse 16 it says, And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and even camels. What does this sound like? When you think of old times and you probably think about what's going on in there, you know, this is a funny family story. Nancy's family was living in Africa and uh, they were living in Ethiopia and uh, they were good friends with a missionary. And so the missionary says, I want you to go meet this chief. And so they traveled and they met this chief and they went into his home. And my father-in-law was having a discussion with the chief and the, the, my father-in-law mentioned that he had a son. And the chief looked at him and said, how many goats would you want for your son to be my daughter? You know, it was a dowry. 
He, he wasn't doing these things just saying, hey, you got a good-looking wife. He was, he was treating her like Abraham was the brother and the representative in the family, and she was really good-looking, so she was worth even camels. And it's going pretty well for him. You see, here's the reality. The reality is sometimes by our choices... Sometimes even when we make poor choices and we're ready for God to punish, he doesn't punish right away. And so then we kind of get this idea, well, I guess maybe maybe that didn't matter. But think about what he's doing now. He is placing his wife, the woman of the promise, in somebody else's marriage and if they have relations, there's a good chance of what's going to happen. All of a sudden, the child of promise is going to be half Egyptian. And he's going to be the stepson of promise instead of the son of promise. You see, sometimes we've got to go back and we've got to say, okay, God, what are your promises and how do they affect how I live today and what I do today and what's going on today? Because how am I, by my choices today, am I somehow shipwrecking your promises? How am I making it a little harder for you? Some of you in this room are carpenters. And you know that if the guy before you wasn't very serious about how he did carpentry, that the word remodel is not fun, is it? Because you enter into all of his blessings to you. Some of you have worked for places where you're a hard worker, but the person who works the other shift that could set you up really well so you could have a great shift is kind of lazy. And so you experience the jeopardy that they create for you. You see, when we forget the promises and what God's saying, all of a sudden we have this experience. But God knew what His promise was. Remember, he said four times, he said, I will do this. He's not asking Abraham to do something. He says, this is what I want to do. But Abraham, because of what's going on with himself emotionally and what's going on with himself in, in his, his desires and even the basic things like eating and, and in his desire for self-preservation, he is immediately after the promise is given in, in, in chapter 12, he's immediately putting that promise in jeopardy. But that's what we do. Sometimes. So what does God do? But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his, and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. You know, this is the downside to being an Egyptian. They get to experience plagues. And all of a sudden, because of what God wanted to do, Everybody faced judgment because of Abram's decisions. 
Remember, I said you can't sin alone, can you? So sometimes your choices don't just affect you, but they affect everybody around you. And some of you are struggling today not because of your own sin, but because you live in some of the consequences of somebody else's sin. God exposes his foolishness. <laughs> Look what Pharaoh says in the next verse. So Pharaoh came, called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Well, what in the world were you doing, Abraham? Well, what were you doing? And so this is what Pharaoh did. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning them, and they sent them away with his wife and all that he had. Pharaoh just wanted to be done with it all, and so he sent him even with the wealth that he probably didn't deserve. You know, Egypt has done a pretty good job of financing a lot of things. Here they're financing the father of a great nation. At the Exodus, what do they do? They finance a great nation. That's how Israel was financed. Remember, they gave all their wealth after the plagues there, and that's how they financed a nation of millions of people. Egyptians, that's what they did in the life of what God does. So in, in the beginning of chapter 13, it's interesting. It says, so Adram went up from Egypt he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into Negev. Remember? Negev is where he was in Canaan before he got hungry. Remember that? Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and in silver and in gold. And he journeyed from Negev far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there God called upon, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Here's the interesting thought. We'll get there in just a second. It's interesting that when God corrected Abram, he went back to the beginning of where he met God. I I just think that that's really interesting. That's what repentance is. Repentance is saying, I'm no longer going to go my own way, and I'm going back to where I was at the beginning. I, I think it's a beautiful picture. But this isn't just about Abram, isn't it? We're kind of this way, aren't we? Let, let's just take a look at some corollaries here. Even though God has made great promises to us as his people, he's called us his children, we are his inheritance. We are a royal priesthood. On and on, I could list the many things we are. We face hardship and hungers that can move us to escape. The hardship comes and instead of turning to God, we go, what am I going to do? And we run from 
God. Second of all, we face danger and our fears can motivate us to scheme just like he schemed. Okay, look, I don't know why, and there's this whole long discussion in a lot of the literature that I was reading about what was the reason that Abraham was so convinced that if he went to Egypt and he was married to a good-looking woman that they'd kill him. But there must have been some story in the paper or some kind of legend or something going on. But there are sometimes fears, real and imaginary, that send us to the edge of a cliff And instead of saying, you are my rock, I will stand on you. Instead of saying, I will go to the mountains, where does my help from? My help comes from the Lord. We go, I don't know what I'm going to do. Let's see, what can I do? And we start concocting a scheme that when people look on the outside of it, and even if we spoke it out loud to other people, they'd go, what are you thinking? What are you doing? But we take what little knowledge we have in our head and we do this self-talk because of our fears and our anxiety and of all of these things. And some of the, the conclusions we come to are nuts. And sometimes we don't see it in ourselves. But if somebody else is going through that, we think they're nuts. I can remember when we were down in Florida, I was going through something, and I called up my really good friend, and I explained it all to him, and he goes, Jim, I think you're a moron. Because the schemes of what I was thinking that I could do, when he heard them out loud, they made no sense. But sometimes in our danger, we don't run to God. We run from His promises. And we run from His place. And we just try to figure out some way to do self-preservation because we are so afraid. God's Word says that we're not supposed to trust our emotions. The emotions were tied up in the heart. And it says, the heart is deceitful above all things. But sometimes our, our little bit of wisdom is really nothing more than foolishness. Sometimes, not only do we face that, but we, we face or experience undeserved windfalls and our greed can justify our compromise. You know, sometimes we get away with it. It pains me that even in Christian circles, I will hear people give each other advices for how to cheat on your taxes. Well, you don't, you don't need to claim that. Here's how you kind of get around that. This is how you do this. Instead of just living it plainly, we live it differently. I was really convicted, and I, I love the story in, in a book where a man was talking about how he went to buy a phone, and the salesman was confused, so he got a much better phone than he should have for a much cheaper price. And he was talking to his mentor about how good a deal was and how much money he was going to save every month. 
And the guy asked him, and he said the total was like $36.57 a month that he would save. And his mentor got really angry at him, and he looked at him and says, so your integrity is only worth $37.57. It's silly things like getting too much change, but going back and saying, hey, this isn't yours. This isn't mine. I'm going to give this back. Because our integrity is worth more than the extra quarter and two nickels we got. But sometimes things go okay even when we're sinning, so we think, okay, uh, maybe it's okay that I sin. There's still a windfill. There's still blessing coming. Maybe I can just get away with it. But you can't. God loves to use a clean vessel A dirty vessel is harder for him to use. But ultimately, out of his love for us, and out of his concern for us, at some point, the great God of heaven, with all tenderness, and with complete lack of sarcasm, will expose our foolishness and explain his judgment to us. Because his promises are so important. And he wants us to be instrument of his promises. And his plan is so individualized. I know the plans that I have for you plans to prosper you and not harm you. In this world, you will have trouble, hardship. But I have overcome the world. And that's why we, like Abraham, need to return to the beginning I think that's why, and that's why I placed this here today. Because God has created, even in the life of the church, a cycle that always takes us back to the cross, doesn't it? Communion was supposed to remind us again of the value of the cross. See, God always takes us back to the beginning and tells us the things that are most important. I love you. I am your Savior. I died for your sins. Some of you need to accept that message for the very first time today. You've been tap dancing around it. You've been in church. You've heard it said. But you need to make your personal decision that you need a Savior today. Because you're living by your emotions and your needs. And when you really think about the plans, and it seems to be working, but I'm going to tell you that plans that don't line up with God do not work long term. And at some points, God will show you the folly of that. The foolishness of that. 
And He's calling you, some time of you, for the first time to the cross and saying, I want to forgive your sins. I don't want to legislate your sins away. That's what the world is doing. That's what our nation is doing. Our nation is saying, that's not a sin anymore. We changed the law. You can kill your baby until the day it's born. That's the law of the land. And if that baby comes out alive, you can still kill it. That's the law of the land. It's foolishness. Every mother that has a baby knows that. Because the second that baby kicks and moves inside of you, you don't say, well, this fetus will eventually become a baby. No. You're thinking about what you're going to name it. You're thinking how precious it is. You're dreaming about its life. But hardship for some. Fear and anxiety for others cause us to do all kinds of things that compromise even the morals that we understand for ourselves for the sake of some form of self-preservation. But God, out of His love for each one of us, holds up the mirror and says, this is not good. Do you like what you see in the mirror? It's not pretty. You know better. And so for some of you today, it's the day of salvation. But some of us are already in the faith. We've already received the promises. Yet when hardship comes, we don't act like we've received the promises. When our emotions take over, we don't act like we're children of the king. And it seems like we're kind of being blessed. So maybe it's okay that I sit in some. Maybe it's okay that I'm not completely holy. I guess you let me get away with that one, God. High five. It doesn't work that way. Jesus Christ said that we were supposed to be holy as he is holy. He has given his righteousness to us so that we can learn to walk in righteousness. And so he's calling us all back to the altar again, to the place where we once started, to hit the reset button on life and live it better and live it in repentance to him. Not because we've been caught at something, but because we are so overwhelmed with the gift of mercy that is ours that we're praying that it will transform us forever. So for some of you, I encourage you, ask God to be your Savior today. Enter into the kingdom. And for the rest of us, it's time to go back to the altar again to let God sit, take a look at who we are, to figure out how maybe hardship or fear is causing us to compromise 
instead of saying yes to the God that made us. I'm going to ask uh, four people to come up so that we can have the elements for the communion. If you are a believer today and you've asked Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, I encourage you to come to the table today. Even if it's today that you made that decision, I encourage you to come today. If, that, if you're not there yet, 